Welcome back from your break. Please open in your scriptures to the book of Exodus. Exodus, which is found in your Old Testament. If you're streaming this morning and you don't have a copy, personal copy of the scriptures, there's a link there near the bottom of the frame to an app called the Bible Gateway, which I actually use from time to time on my phone, my smartphone. I'll click on the Bible Gateway and you wanna type in the word Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15, we're looking at the song of Moses today. This is our last message from the book of Exodus uh, in 2021. We'll begin our Advent series next week uh, with with a series of messages given by uh, most, if not all the pastors as we prepare our hearts uh, to receive Christ and his glorious uh, birth on the 24th. But today we're in Exodus, a series we began um, earlier this year, and we're in the 15th chapter of Exodus in the message I've entitled, The Song of Salvation. Some of you who follow uh, the, the theater arts and the, the world of Broadway musicals, no doubt, saw the news yesterday of the passing of Stephen Sondheim, one of the most renowned uh, musical composers, lyricists, uh, and uh, writers of a generation. He's probably most famous for uh, composing and writing West Side Story, which I understand is coming out in a movie form uh, next month. But if you look at the, the series of musicals he was responsible for, you know you're, as, as one headliner described him, he was a titan in the um, theater arts. Well. I once lived with someone who thought he was Stephen Sondheim. Poor transition. His name was Keith. Uh, by day, Keith, and I don't have permission to share this illustration, Keith uh, burned CDs, uh, took, this was early uh, CD technology, took, I guess what would be recordings and burned them onto CDs for the company to hear. But by night, Keith, my, my single roommate, beloved brother in Christ, um, six foot two, he projected Stephen Sondheim. And he would say things like, all of life is a musical. Which the three single brothers uh, who were not inclined to sing in the kitchen of their home or while filling their car with gasoline at the gas station or uh, just hanging out in the living room, singing a song to capture the moment seemed just, I felt like we were forfeiting man points, so to speak. But Keith, I have this picture of Keith at the top of our two-story home that we rented, singing with his guitar about what we were going to do that Saturday together. And he would say to me, Bauer, all of life is a theme song. Now, Keith would be guilty of plagiarism, so oftentimes the riffs he came up with were familiar songs that were re-recorded, but sometimes it would be original. And as we watched over the holidays another musical by someone who was 
influenced by Stephen Sondheim and was composing songs as he worked in a diner about working in a diner or hosting friends in his apartment there in New York City and coming up with a song or being a starving artist in New York City and trying to hope that someone would recognize him and coming up with a song. I realized he was tapping into a deep biblical reality that I don't think Netflix or the producer of this musical realized. You and I, if we are genuine Christians, are participating in a rehearsal that involves music. And whether you like to sing or not, this song will be sung in heaven. And the song of Moses that we're about to read is being sung alongside of it as well. And you or I are standing on another shore, not the shores of the Red Sea, but the shores of eternity. And we are being asked to join heaven itself in a song of salvation that celebrates the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So let's listen carefully because this is part of your and my rehearsal. Do you remember rehearsals in high school with music teachers that demanded your attention? This is God's word and he is signaling through it. There is a song I'm teaching you to sing and it will be sung into eternity for the glory of my son. Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, verse four. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing 
wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he, he has thrown into the sea. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Salvation is what put this song into Israel's heart. Lord, we too are called to sing to our great and glorious and gracious God because of our ultimate salvation through Christ. We pray, Lord, that your word this morning would encourage our hearts. As the great songwriter wrote years ago, tune thy heart to sing of thy grace. Lord, that you might be glorified, we might be encouraged. Lord, and the world would know Christ. Christ is king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you about another song. It occurs in the eighth inning of every Red Sox game. Do you know what song I'm speaking of? Sweet Carolina. I bet a number of you can know that song by heart. I don't know the words by heart. I have to follow the, the lyrics. But I do like the experience, which says a lot about me, of expressing euphoria and joy with 36,000 deranged Red Sox fans. Win or lose, 
each eighth inning. And, you know, I bet they can hear that song, Zoe. I bet they can hear that song. That's in the Fens, right? I bet they can hear that song in Brookline. 40,000 fans singing Sweet Caroline. Every eighth inning of a home game during Red Sox season. That's 80 plus times, win or lose, that song gets sung. Here, we have a song being sung by scholars, say, two million or more. Rescued Israelites, as they have seen with their eyes, I do believe this is a literal account, notwithstanding the poetic form of the song we just sung, a literal account, historical account of Israel's deliverance from Pharaoh and his army through the Red Sea. I don't accept the scholarly interpretation that it didn't happen or the Red Sea was at low tide and the tides changed or whatever. But we can talk about that. But the structure of the song does give us an indication that this is a song like the Sweet Caroline of eighth inning Red Sox games. We cannot just sing, but we, we can have our lives shaped by it. As God tunes your heart to sing of his grace through the deliverance given you if you're a Christian in Christ. So my main point this morning is simply this. We are called to sing to our great and glorious God because of our ultimate salvation through Christ. We are called to sing to our great and glorious God. And not only does the song of Moses indicate that, but the writer of Revelation informs us that God's people, Christians, will be singing in heaven the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And Moses writes this song, prophet that he is, and clearly an artistic composer that he demonstrates himself to be, celebrating Israel's glorious deliverance from Egypt. That's my first point, if you will. So let's look at the song. I think the structure is simple enough to follow. We're given the theme of the song in verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And Miriam, who we'll talk about a little later, picks up that theme, doesn't she, at the end of the song in verse 21 and leads the women with tambourines in singing to the Lord. The same refrain, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. That's the theme of the song, verse 1 and verse 21. The first stanza, verses 2 through verses 10, seem to focus us on praising God for what he has done, recounting in poetic form the miraculous deliverance of Israel from Pharaoh's armies. And the second stanza, beginning in verse 11, praises God for who he is. So we have a song that praises God for what he's done in the past, and then a second verse seems to come in in verse 11 and following for who he is. 
And then, beginning in verse 13, in some ways, this is its prophetic element. It looks ahead to the future and prepares Israel for what God will do then. And then Miriam does her riff. So we got our work cut out for us, and we're going to do this efficiently, and I trust in a way that encourages you. Moses writes a song celebrating Israel's glorious deliverance from Egypt. Did you notice as we read this song, I did as I reflected on it, and I imagine you did too, that for six, 18 verses, Moses never mentions himself. It's remarkable. Because chapter 14, which gives us the context of this song so soon after their miraculous, unexpected, unanticipated, unprecedented deliverance from the Egyptian armies who were pursuing them, arguably to destroy them, the inspired word of God says in verse 30 and 31 of chapter 14, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses, and they should because God has used Moses for almost 12 chapters now through this prophet to work wonders. He was the chosen instrument and the staff, which symbolized God's authority and power, to work plagues and wonders in their deliverance through Egypt, culminating in the parting of the Red Sea as Moses extended his arm and told Israel, stand firm, stand firm, believe and see the salvation. Remember that last week? We get to a song and Moses is completely absent from the lyrics of God's deliverance. But what is emphasized? What God has done and who God is repeatedly, again and again and again. Moses, perhaps better than I know, so I'll put myself in this, realizes, because he has seen it all, that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. And therefore, all glory, all glory, all glory, Lord Jesus, must be ascribed to you. And so when we read the theme in verse 1, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider thrown into the sea. It's clear. This is a song of salvation about God and his deliverance of his people. But then it gets personal, verse 2, doesn't it? Moses says, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. The Lord has become my salvation. Verse 2, he is my God, my Father's God. I will exalt him. This is personal for Moses. 
the triumph of God over the Egyptian army by drowning them in the sea is personal because Moses had a personal relationship with Yahweh. He was able to say this of Yahweh, the Lord, this God, the God whose praise I sing is my God. This God is my strength. This Lord is my song. The song of Moses, as thoroughly God-centered as it is, is deeply personal for Moses too. And he wants to set his personal testimony to music as he rejoices through his vision of who God is and what he has done. Which begs the question as we begin, doesn't it? Do you have a personal relationship with God? Would you say, would I say, is Jesus Christ my strength, using the words in verse 2? Would I say he's my song? He's whom I'm turned to, and he is one who turns to me to sing of his salvation and glory. In my day-to-day life and in my Sunday service, I want to commend you, Crossway. This is a church that has been known not only by us, but by people who we have the privilege to serve as a singing church. We love to make music to the Lord, don't we? Small or large. People who love to do music and people who they've just had to learn how to love to do music, I guess. To know God through the songs that we sing is to have a personal relationship with him. That means not only coming to him by, through faith in Jesus Christ and in repentance for our sins, but allowing the songs we sing How relevant is this to Advent? Allowing those songs we sing, which I believe we create a playlist every week on the email, to inform your vision of what God wants to do in your heart this Advent. And if you do not know Christ in a personal way, may I encourage you, may the songs, may the songs become part of your journey, your adventure whether you are a Christian and need to be renewed and recaptured and in your hope and faith in Christ or whether you're not to receive him, to receive him more deeply drawn by his heart for you into his purposes and his promises and his presence. Ah, that's the beauty of Advent. God not only enjoys you, He wants to change you because it says in Scripture, to fear the Lord is to delight in his commandments. We are commanded to sing these songs to him because he personally has delivered us. But it goes on, doesn't it? They praise God for what he has done. Moses does beginning in... Verse 3, he describes the Lord as a warrior, and everything that follows seems to take this metaphor from human experience and describe for Israel the Lord 
as one who fights for them. Remember that language from chapter 14? The Lord who works for them and fights for them. It's perhaps theology that we're not familiar with in our, in our modern vernacular or understanding or vocabulary, but Moses is very clear. The Lord, verse 3, is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then in the verses that follow, he depicts the triumph of the Lord over Pharaoh's armies, over the Egyptian armies, as God fighting for his people. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. Verse 5, the floods covered them. Verse 6, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. Verse 10, you blew your wind, the sea covered them. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. The description of what God has done in fighting for his people may be striking to our ears, if not uncomfortable, because Moses is praising God, not for the Exodus in general. Moses is praising God, and he is leading Israel, God's people, to praise God for his, for Yahweh's demonstration of his great power over the Egyptian army as an expression of his holy justice and righteous wrath towards those who oppose him. I would have to listen a long time to Christian radio and serious radio to find a song that even gives me a stanza that reflects this theology, wouldn't I? But this song of salvation introduces us to a aspect of God's character, not at the expense of his love. Verse 13 is very clear. God loves his people, but brings into sharp focus for us that the surprising good news of their deliverance in the song of Moses is that Israel is learning to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord that the writer says is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord that, that doesn't in terror turn away from God or cow or, or be condemned by God, but nonetheless, as he draws near to us through Christ and we receive his son in the mercy and grace that he is, we also realize and recognize he is God and I am not. He is holy and he is merciful towards me who often is not holy. He is eternal, all attributes celebrated in this psalm, and I am temporal and finite. He is just. And so this psalm makes us wise as to who God is and what Yahweh the Lord requires of us in living responsibly and responsibly and in a loving relationship with him. So question, is there room in our hearts this Advent season to both rejoice in, hallelujah, the graciousness and mercy and presence of Christ in our lives and both tremble at who he is and will always be?
Have you discovered with the psalmist and the composer of Moses' song, have you discovered by God's grace why the scriptures declare that the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him? Moses rejoices and he trembles because he knows God and what he has done. Second stanza, we praise God for who he is, not only what he has done, and verses 11 through 13, and for time's sake, I'll economize. What, what God has done always shows who God is, and this song works to reveal something of his character. In verse three, we have sung about God's eternity. In verse six, Moses describes his greatness and power. In verse seven and eight, his wrath towards the Egyptian, or towards the Egyptian armies. And then in verse 11, God's absolute supremacy. Look again with me at this verse. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. I did something yesterday I've never done before. It's Friday. We enjoyed it Saturday with the help of some people in this church. I smoked six pounds of bacon. That's a lot. I know. I think it, that was too much, actually. Um, not to eat, but to smoke. Um, and I'm giving it away to some of my friends that have coached me and encouraged me in my beginning with Dave, some comfort food for the journey you're on. And I like bacon, and so does Linda. This is not just Bauer smoking meat. Linda likes bacon. And I would be the first to say that smoked bacon, Ben, when it's done right, is awesome. It's awesome. It's salty. It's fatty. And when it's cured, right, you chew it slowly so you can suck out of it <laughs> all the juices. Mm -hmm. If you've had Bruce's brisket, it's awesome. If you've had whatever you make, it's awesome. And I like that word, awesome. But heaven has a different meaning when they use the word awesome. And it's really nothing in our human experience. It doesn't mean we shouldn't use awesome to say that bacon was awesome. But if we're singing the song of Moses and we're preparing for eternity in heaven, there's another meaning for awesome that's about to blow our minds. I do hope we smoke meat in heaven. But awesome will be reserved for God in heaven, won't it? So don't hear what I'm not saying. Word police, shepherd your own heart, shepherd your own speech. Keep using the word awesome. But when Moses says in verse 11, who is like you, awesome in glorious deeds, he's talking about salvation. Our salvation and deliverance by God is 
awesome, awesome, awesome. And not only that, verse 13, his love for us is awesome. Verse 13 says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode, signaling perhaps their journey to the promised land. Verse 14, the peoples have heard, these will be the, the peoples that they will fight for to occupy the promised land. But verse 17, in his awesome love, he will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever as the psalm concludes and Miriam takes up her tambourine with the other women and joins Moses in celebrating. We see God's awesome love on full display as he promises based on his faithfulness and his word to us that he will not keep his love to himself but will share it with his people and will be with them and lead them home where he is. What does this song show us about who God is? It reveals, it reveals his loving character for us who have placed our trust in Christ. And it gives us this promise about our future that he will in awesome power keep. So as the Israelites sat or stood on the shore of the Red Sea, seeing, seeing the, 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 the bodies of the Egyptian army that had been destroyed, their captors for 400 years, their dead, and they're now breathing the new air of their freedom, and they're singing an inspired song of their deliverance. We are told by John at the end of our Bibles, that we are also being led somewhere by God's awesome love. To another shore, Revelation 15, to what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who had conquered the beast and its image, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gods in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses and the song of the land saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. There it is again. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. My friend, if you're a Christian, this is a description of our future. Your future, my future, this church's future. When we will not only sing the song of Moses in heaven with those who have gone before us and those who will follow behind us, but we will sing it to Christ himself, face to face, celebrating his glorious deliverance of us. And so we too are called to sing
to our great and glorious God because of our ultimate salvation through Christ, this life, this life is a rehearsal for that moment. Let's keep singing the song. It's Advent. And let's sing it not only when we're together, but while we're apart. And may John's description of our future in heaven help us today to rehearse the wonders of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, as the realities of which I speak, we, we reflect on, fill our hearts. It, it really does bring us to tears to consider Jesus, you're coming to earth out of your great love. To reveal your glory, your greatness, your grace. That we who walked in darkness might receive you as Christ, as King, and as Savior. Lord, we who are Christians have beheld an even greater, more solemn, more significant deliverance than an Egyptian army. We have, we have been rescued from your just wrath my sins and so we are thankful Lord Jesus not only for your first coming but your sacrifice as a man on the cross your triumphant resurrection from the grave your glorious ascension where you now reign and your promised return one day to bring your people home again. But for now, Lord, we view what we do today as a rehearsal for that time when we will sing with others the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Thank you for teaching us to sing the wonders of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.